When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to the Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. This is Megan Gibson, the host of the Family Brain. Sorry, my voice is a little scratchy. The allergies are getting to me these days. But I just wanted to introduce our next guest. I'm talking with Richard Weisborg today. Richard Weisborg is a senior lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and at the Kennedy School of Government. And he has a special focus on resiliency and this focus on social emotional learning programs within schools. He helps direct a organization called Making Caring Common. And I first found out about Making Caring Common when I was trying to do some research for a nonprofit I helped found, Project Brave. And I just was so impressed by the work he's doing. And what he's really working on through Making Caring Common is helping to bring Um, social-emotional learning programs into the classrooms by training teachers, getting administrators and educators aware of the research behind social-emotional learning programs. Social-emotional learning programs basically meaning not just focusing on did you get an A in math or can you read at a certain rate per minute, but focusing on the full development of children. How are they getting along with their peers? Do they know how to manage their impulses? Do they know how to label their feelings and have empathy for other people's feelings, all of these things that are not, you know, on the test kind of thing. Um, But I really enjoyed talking with him and hope you enjoy it as well. So I just wanted to let you know a little bit of how, so Justine Finn connected us um, Justine Finn, who I interviewed from Relationship, but I also know about your work because I helped start a nonprofit here in San Antonio, and we basically um, started this nonprofit, Project Brave, on the heels of one of my friends um, being killed in a domestic violence situation, and we wanted to do something for kids to kind of 
increase social emotional literacy, although we didn't really know what that was at the time. And so I started doing a lot of reading and I came across making caring common. So I am a big fan already because a lot of the work that you're doing with making caring common is we're we're basically trying to copy you in a lot of ways, um, in simpler ways, but by um, bringing sort of social emotional literacy to schools. So I would just want to thank you for all well, the work I'm you're honored. doing. That's yes. wonderful. Thank you. That's great. I really am. I'm a big fan. I mean, it was hard on the heels of, of a hard situation happening and then trying to figure out, we know we want to do something and we know it want, we want to do something for kids, but not really having the language of what we were trying to do. And I feel like your organization helped give words to what we were feeling we needed, but we just didn't know what the language to use. So thank well, you for that. Great. That's great. You bet. You bet. Thank you for saying that. Yes. And I'm a big fan it. of your um, Facebook posts and articles. So it helps oh, keep okay. me up to date. But <laughs> I, I was, have nothing to do with that. They're <laughs> great. They're really good. As my son, who's 11, likes to say, why do adults like to read articles so much? Because it's like, it seems like anytime I read an article, he's like, oh, great. What happened now? You know, it's like something's going to change for him. Um, but I was wondering if you could just tell everybody a little bit about Making Caring Common, how it got started and um, just sort of the basics of, of what the organization is about. The Making Sure and Common started about five years ago, and it was, um, and we started, I started with Stephanie Jones um, because of our concern about the degree to which we elevated achievement and happiness as the primary goals of child raising and, and demoted or marginalized concern for other people and concern for the common good. But, Caring for others did not appear to be a priority anymore in schools or in homes. And that was coming up in our research. It was coming up in other people's research as well. Um, so, you know, our mission has been to put caring for others, justice, um, empathy, um, front and center in, in parents' minds and in the minds of educators, but also to give parents and educators concrete strategies for developing empathy, gratitude, self-awareness, a commitment to justice. Um, so we've been working on both of those levels. Do you think that this has always been an issue, or is this something that has shifted in our generation changes? Well, it's a great question. I mean, I don't think things are, you know, it's hard to make the, the case that kids or adults are less caring now than they were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. I mean, you know, in many ways, uh, we have have a serious problem in this country with racism and sexism and homophobia, but I think all of those things are are considerably better than they were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Like, we have a long way to go, but we've come a long way. So we're not making a general claim that people are less caring. We are saying that the signals that kids receive about what's important um, have changed. And we used to live much more in ethical culture. You know, schools in this country were founded to, to prepare young people, to, to prepare children and young people to be caring, responsible citizens. Colleges in this country, by and large, were started, including Harvard, were founded to prepare young men. It should have been young women, too to be caring ethical citizens. Um, you know, religious institutions clearly have uh, moral concerns at their center. Um, and religious, I'm not saying something pro or con about re- any particular religion, but participation in religion is also way down. So these institutions that used to 
focus primarily families, schools, religious institutions on developing, cultivating kids, concern for others, concern for their communities, um, really are no longer playing that role. And, you know, we are living much more in a performance, achievement, success culture than we are in an ethical culture. And that's what's concerning. Yeah. Now, I, I think I, I, don't, I'm, it must have been on one of your articles in your um, Facebook blasts, but um, I remember reading something about how even if parents say that's what they care most about, oftentimes their behaviors and their actions and their their questions and their way of interacting with their kids doesn't match up. Is that what you're still finding to be true? Yes, we are, we are still finding. We are finding that if you ask parents what's most important in child raising um, and we give them the choice between caring, happiness, and achievement, most parents say caring and they, and they, and, and they tend to put achievement third. But if you ask middle and high school students, and we've asked about 40,000 middle and high school students, this question, what's most important to your parents, happiness, caring, and achievement, they say achievement. They put happiness second and caring third. <laughs> so, um, so parents are espousing that caring is most important to them and their kids, but that's not the message kids are absorbing. It's that rhetoric reality gap that we're trying to close. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, I've... Um... I, I meant to look up her name, and now I'm forgetting. But the woman um, professor from Stanford who does the Challenge Success, do you know who that Denise is? Denise Pope. She is <laughs> yeah. so awesome. I love her. I should I should have remembered her name. But um, I think she, I'm her work. Talking to her at, I'm talking to her at four. Oh, really? I interviewed her. She's <laughs> uh, awesome. Yeah. I love her. Because what's interesting is that it it, I mean, it kind of echoes what I do, you know, and I think a lot of that is can be fear based, you know, like what if you don't catch up and then you won't have a job and then you won't this and, you know, you can kind of get on this roller coaster as a parent. I have three children and it's like I'm aware of that and I'm trying not to do it, but it's really hard depending on what kind of, um, I don't know, circles you're in or, you know what I mean? Like you can easily get kind of caught up with absolutely what's going on with other people. Um, Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, so the other thing that's related to what you just said, you know, about our data, is if you ask parents, what do other parents in your communities value, um, in your community value? They say uh, that other parents value achievement. Um, And they're much more likely to say other parents value achievement, and, um, and they're much more likely to think other parents value achievement more than caring in their kids. So... Well, parents think that they value caring. They think a great majority of their peers don't. So, you know, in a way, a great majority of parents think the problem is other parents. Yeah. Um, and that's part of what we're trying to combat. Yeah. And that's one of the things um, Denise Pope was talking about is that even sometimes when schools are wanting to change the culture and parents say they want to change the culture, getting from point A to point B can be very challenging because it's yeah. really hard to undo that thought process it's like you need a group therapist in the room also (laughs) for us to deal with (laughs) all of our own issues yep i think that's right what about um in terms of like differences between communities like social um socioeconomic differences between communities do you see differences in what people are saying and doing or is it similar across the line yeah, no, I mean, I think the, I think this is a really important question. You, you know, there, there are a lot of differences. I mean, race, class, and culture differences. I mean, in terms of this achievement, happiness, caring um, question, um, 
you know, for a lot of kids in low-income communities, achievement is about supporting their families and supporting their communities. Um, so for those kids, achievement has a moral purpose. It's not about getting into a highly selective college. It's very important to understand the meaning that, that kids are attaching to these words, like achievement or caring or happiness. Um, you know, in many communities of color, African-American communities, uh, immigrant communities, there isn't this intense focus on the self and how well the self is doing. There's much more of a focus on collective well-being, on the responsibility for other people. So, um, you know, there's this idea out there in the, in the airways that immigrant families are a threat to Americans' moral culture, but, you know, I think immigrant families, in, in fact, represent in many ways what's best about Americans' moral culture. I mean, the sense of collective responsibility. No, that's true. I I love that that your organization goes into all different kinds of communities. It's not just a focus on one population, but it's sort of we're trying. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy to get in the door of a lot of places. That's what we're realizing with our Project Brave organization is that um, schools are on this like hamster wheel sometimes, and it's hard to get the space to get in. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You bet. It's well put. Yeah. Um. We are, we've, we've come up, I was talking to a man in Austin who helps run the social emotional, um, learning programs in Austin. And he was saying, why don't you show up with some books, like kids books? And so that's what we started doing. And really that's kind of our jam right now is we bring, um, kids books, children's authors, and we're sort of starting to move into like seventh, eighth grade level reading. And we've created conversation starters so that the kids, so even though, even if they don't want us to show up and, you know, have a lesson plan going, we can bring the books and the teachers can take the books and have a conversation around the books. So it's been a sort of easy way to come bearing a gift at the very least. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit, I know I had sent this in our initial conversation over email, just not so much talk about everything going on with, um, the Supreme Court hearings right now, but just, I feel like that all of this is bringing up conversation around um, how we talk to our kids about consent and how we treat one another and sexual harassment. And I'm just wondering, as a observer and as a researcher in this area, what are you noticing or what do you think we're missing that's got, kind of gotten us to this point where this is all such a confusing conversation? Well, our, our research is, you know, is, is primarily about um, levels of sexual harassment to less extent sexual assault, mostly sexual harassment, misogyny. And the kinds of conversations that young people are having with parents and educators about sexual harassment, also to some degree sexual assault, and, you know, the big takeaway is that, you know, sexual harassment is incredibly pervasive. I mean, you know, 80, we did a survey of 18 to 25-year-olds, and 87% reported that they had been sexually harassed. Um, that percent, 87% of girls, women, reported they had been sexually harassed. Um, there are other studies that, you know, suggest that percent is even higher. Um, and, you know, lots of women... This is what the Me Too movement is about. A frightening number of women have been sexually assaulted, too. And the thing that's dismaying, the thing that's really troubling, is how few parents are having conversations with their with their kids about this. Um, so, you know, significant majorities of 
uh, young people in our survey had never had a conversation with their parents about not pressuring somebody to have sex once they said no, or not pressuring, not having sex with somebody who's so drunk that they're incapacitated. Um, I mean, basic conversations. Parents will share things with their kids, you know, commonly, like be respectful, but they don't go beyond that to really talk about the many different ways in which you can harm somebody else. And a lot of boys don't know. You know, they, um, you know, we've talked to boys who say things, you know, I thought assault was, you know, pulling a woman into a, into a back alley and raping her. I, you know, they, they don't know that you can't have sex with somebody who's incapacitated by alcohol or that you can't pressure someone um, after they've said no. I and mean, there's just basic knowledge we're not sharing with our boys. And that's going on in schools, too. I mean, this is not a topic that sex ed typically takes on in any meaningful way. So, you know, there's no place where young people are in conversation with older adults about this problem, and it's an epidemic. It's a very, you know, it's a very serious problem. We need a Me Too, a Me Too movement focused on middle school and high school. Middle school is probably where sexual harassment is the most pervasive, mm-hmm. and sexual assault is also pervasive. And we're just not talking about it nearly enough. And, you know, I just hope we have a national conversation about this. And the Kavanaugh hearing certainly brought, you know, you know, brought it to people's attention. Um, and, you know, it's unfortunate that we needed the Kavanaugh hearings to get people to pay attention to it, um, and that the Kavanaugh hearings have been so polarizing. But it's a critical, it's just a critical issue to pay attention to. I think so, too. And that's the, I actually grew up in the Washington, D.C. area and went to an all-girls Catholic school there. And so, um, where'd you go? Just like you Georgetown asking. visitation. Uh, I, I spoke at National Cathedral, which I oh, think yes, it, it that's that a beautiful all girls, yes, it yeah, is. Yeah, mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. I, yes, yes. Um, and so a lot of the, the places and the things that are going on, you know, are familiar. But what's cool to me, I mean, outside of the horridness of all of it is just that people are starting to have a conversation. I'm Facebook friends with a woman who is a a nun, and all these former students are chiming in on her Facebook page. And it's just like, and it can get a little bit uncomfortable in some places, but like at least people are talking about it. And I think as parents for our generation, it's making us realize we need to have these conversations with our kids when they're very young, you know, and just kind of that it's an ongoing conversation. It's not one, you know, isolated afternoon. And I think, uh, so hopefully we're, no, we're all you know, learning something. It's an ongoing conversation. It's also a practice. I mean, you know, um, it, it's, it's really uh, developing habits of respect, of tuning in, of listening, of asking for consent, of, you know, um, if checking to people if, to see if people are understanding um an action in the way that you understand it. I mean, you know, from early ages, it's really important to develop these skills in kids. Yes. This ability to attend and appreciate, attend to and appreciate other people, including, certainly including people of different genders, races, class, cultures. I mean, to be intentional about that. You know, boys can often empathize with other boys very well. What they can't really do is empathize with girls. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that's the issue that's, you know, the bigger issue in some way. I just had a conversation with um, Michael Gurian. Do you know him? Yeah. He, I mean, I don't personally know him. Yes. Work. He, um, 
and it's interesting the way he talks about just the brain science of it all, because I think so often I read and learn about things that, oh, there's these differences. But once you start talking about like the way the brain lights up, it kind of makes you realize like maybe we have to take a different angle on how we're talking to boys versus talking to girls about these topics. Maybe their brain isn't connecting and not, not as a, um, pass or something like, oh, they're just not going to get it. But just that, that, you know, we might have to come at it in a few different ways to make sure it all clicks, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm wondering, I know you guys have lots of toolkits and advice for educators and students in your travels to the different schools and different um, regions of the country. What do you think are the things that seem like it's an ongoing theme in in all different places that that your tools have seemed to be helpful in does that make sense like what is there something that you realize like every school can appreciate this and it really seems to help that's a great question so you know i think that we don't i mean first of all unfortunately we don't know a lot about we know that a lot of people are picking up our tools. We don't get a lot of feedback on them. We get some feedback, okay. but you know we have not done an evaluation, so we don't have any really specific feedback. I think that you know what we hear from people is that things like role playing scenarios, and we have those are very helpful. That you know a lot of times people don't know the words to use. You know, so if you're walking down the hall and you're a teacher and you know, boy calls a girl a slut or a hoe or a bitch or says, I hit that last week, or, you know, what do you say? And, you know, I've given scenarios like this to lots of teachers, and a lot of teachers say they're going to be written off or they wouldn't know what to say. And, you know, so part of this is the role-playing, thinking about words you can say, thinking about, you know, what, what are the roadblocks? What gets in the way of my intervening in a situation like this? And how can I get over that roadblock? Um so scenarios are helpful. I mean, one thing that I'm really hoping that schools do and is that we're distributing, we just disseminated this, an audit, you know. So and by an audit, I mean, you know, do kids in your building um, have someone that they will talk to if they're being sexually harassed or if they've been sexually assaulted? How do you know? And if you don't know, have you conducted any surveys? Um is this a building where uh, girls feel safe and LGBTQIA students feel safe? And how, you know, how do you know and have you conducted the survey? Um, so it's an audit of about 10 or 12 questions that every, we think every school should be asking if they're going to take this seriously. And I think that's super important. I think it's just you know, super important to get some data from students themselves. The adults have a lot of misconceptions about what's going on in the student population often, and that it's not hard. You can, with brief surveys that take 10 or 15 minutes, get good data about whether or not students are feeling threatened or safe, and whether there's certain, you know, contexts, the hallways, the bathrooms, the buses, the sports fields, where they might feel particularly threatened. Um, and whether they, you know, have confidential, trusted people they can talk to who will be helpful. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think that schools are hesitant to do this because then they might have to do something about it? I do. Yeah. I mean, that's the hard part. And then what? You know, if the adults yeah. in the building don't know how to deal with this stuff either because they haven't been taught. You know what I mean? Like, how do you teach what you don't know? 
Uh, yeah, no, I think that's an issue. I mean, it's an issue with a lot of things. I mean, I think a lot of public schools and low-income communities, uh, you know, you're, you're raising an important issue. You know, you can do surveys and you can un- uncover that in a lot of communities, you know, that you can uncover problems that families have. Um, you know, in low-income communities, some, you know, we often find a lot of kids, you know, uh, because their parents don't have resources, they're coming to school, they don't have classes. Um, and they're having trouble seeing. But if you're a teacher, you know, once you discover these things, you are responsible for dealing with them. I mean, right. So, you know, this is, it's your point. This is true in a lot of different contexts. And, um, but, you know, the case we're making is, you know, something like bullying became, you know, which is a serious problem, has become, uh, you know, it's it's become a focus for lots of schools. And bullying is, you know, significantly less common than sexual harassment. So, you know, there are, schools can deal with this. And there are strategies, and a lot of them are not heavy lift either. I mean, there are just things like knowing, getting on the same page, having all adults be on the same page, and, you know, with some consistent set of messages, it's having young people themselves take leadership roles in preventing this. Um, and it's, you know, collecting some data and make sure, making sure that every young person has somebody to talk to. Yeah, and then I think what's interesting is that sometimes the... So you have the school system. I'm not trying to be negative. (laughs) Let me just put that out there. But like sometimes you have the school system and you might have the counselor. So then I kind of feel for the counselor, right? Because they're the person everybody's going to holding all this information. And I guess what I'm thinking is there just needs to be a bigger structure to support all of this. Because imagine I'm the counselor in this school and everybody's telling me everything, but my hands are tied, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is a... you know, this is another issue where, um, you know, economic class school resources is super important. I mean, the average ratio of counselor to kid in high schools is something like 450 to 1. I mean, there's some districts where it's 800 to 1. So, you know, the, the, the bigger issue, especially for kids who are not in well-resourced schools, is they don't have access to counselors. Um, in those places where they do have access to counselors, sometimes counselors aren't trained to deal with this kind of thing. So there's an issue of getting more counselors, getting counselors better trained, but I think your point is also important, which is, you know, other adults in the building need some preparation training in dealing with this stuff. And it doesn't need to be intensive training, but, um, you know, there's almost always at every grade level a, a teacher that students will really trust and getting that person some support and training and dealing with this because they may, they're likely to be the, the, the front line, the first responders. You know, a kid after school will mention something that's going on to a trusted teacher and they mm-hmm. just you know, need some basic information about what they might do about it. Okay. Are there any resources? Uh, like, I know Making Caring Common has these toolkits. Is that what you would recommend to educators or people who, who are just looking for like sort of the 101 of of kind of yeah, you know, yeah, no, we have these, we do have these toolkits, but um, I just also want to emphasize that there's a, a ton of resources out there on different types of problems. Um, and in our report, the talk, we have a whole resource inventory. There are a lot of organizations working on this. There 
are things, you know, they're, they're difficult topics. Like, we really need to talk to boys about, we need to talk to boys and girls about porn. That's a hard thing for parents to talk about. There are, there are good online resources for talking to, that, you know, you can connect kids to for talking about porn. There are good online resources around misogyny or assault. So if you're a parent or an educator who's uncomfortable having these education, these conversations, it is possible to link kids to, you know, good resources on these things. Okay. And that's what I'm sort of trying to do with this podcast is kind of put out different things. Because what I've heard from a lot of people, I, I, um, have, I went to the ed school, actually, and then I have a um, social work degree. And so I, I read these articles. I, I learn about this stuff. But what I'm realizing from a lot of parents is that they don't even really know where to start. You know what I mean? Um, and so I'm hopeful that, you know, putting some of these resources out there will help people connect to the things that might help them. That's what I, that's exactly what my experience has been too, that a lot of parents don't know where to start and we're just trying to give them, you know, we are not saying these tools are, you know, in any way are the answer. We're just, they're, they're, I think an important starting point and I think they're going to be helpful, but, um, you know, there's lots more that parents can do around this. One of the things I've noticed with parents is that you can say one thing, but your day-to-day attitudes teach more, basically your modeling of how you do things, how you conduct yourselves. What's your advice to parents on that? Like if they have grown up in a generation that they didn't maybe learn all of these skills, but they're trying to do better for their kids. Well, you know, um, it's another great question. The, I mean, I guess there are a couple of things. One is the modeling issue. And I do think parents have to be attentive to what they're modeling for kids. I mean, it's, you know, our, our, if you're growing up with, parents who are together, two parents, what kind of relationship are you modeling for your kids? And are you modeling listening and respect and care and, you know, mutual appreciation? Um, and what kind of gender roles are you modeling for your kids? Um, you know, all those things are context for sexual harassment and they can be context for sexual assault too. Um, so the, the, the modeling issue is very important. I think the other issue you're raising is you know, there are people, a lot of them, who, you know, have grown up um, without any experience talking about these issues. There, you know, I've talked to many women over the years who are raising boys and find it difficult and challenging, especially when the boys reach adolescence, um, to deal with their boys and their sexual impulses and their aggressiveness. And sometimes it beca- because it reminds them of too many men they've known. Mm. Or lack of exposure. Like in my case, I went to an all-girls school. I had sisters. And every time my boys do anything, I look at my husband. I'm like, is this normal? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> it's normal. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh. I know. <laughs> you know. I know. Um, no, that's, I think you're absolutely right. So, um, so, you know, these are cases where, you know, sometimes talking to somebody who's trained, a psychologist or a counselor can help. But, we're really encouraging parents to talk to each other, um, uh, particularly to talk to you know people who have had more experience raising boys, other parents who have gone through this before. We're encouraging parents. You know, there are lots of different kinds of support groups and and parent education programs that they can avail. You know, many parents. You know, some parents don't have access to them, but many parents do have access to them. You know, we're you know there's. We're trying to encourage a lot of different kinds of conversations around this, and we're trying to encourage more access and of online resources about this. 
Yeah, and that's great. No, it's a, it's an amazing resource. What what is your take on all of the discussion around school violence, like guns and killings? That's sort of the next level up, but it seems like that's a big part of the communication out there right now too. What is what is your stance on that? Uh, you know, my basic—I mean, my basic stance. This won't surprise you. Is that the idea of arming teachers is a name to me. It's just kind of—it's uh, just kind of nutty. I think it's just really going to create more problems than it solves. Um, is that what you meant? Yes, yes. Although I live in Texas, so a lot of the people listening do not <laughs> might be surprised by that answer. That's what's interesting, I think, regionally. I mean, I'm not saying everybody in Texas thinks teachers should be armed by any means. But I think regionally, different pockets of the country probably have different takes on, on that. Well, if you think I'm going to start getting hate mail or threats from well, people, I'm sure there, it's would... not going to be new if it's... <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just kidding. Um, I No, I don't well, think I mean, you're going to be getting I, hate mail. I, I, yeah, I have gotten hate mail for this kind of thing. Yeah. So if you worry about that in terms of your audience. I'd oh, no, I'm you. not. I'm not worried at all. I'm not worried at all. I guess I'm just trying to point out that um, that what might seem like, duh, we're not going to arm teachers. There are people that I know. I, I agree with you. Oh, I know. But, oh, um, I know. but it's just an interesting, I mean, there's really strong feelings on it. Yeah, no, no I know. And I, and I think it makes no sense. Um, and. Uh, I don't think it's going to stop perpetrators. I think they're going to, you know, there's a risk of accidents. I think, you know, people, the level of training it uses to use a gun properly, you know, doesn't, means it doesn't make sense. We're going to end up in a country where everybody's got a gun. I mean, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I think that, you know, what does make sense is the best prevention we can have are really caring, inclusive communities where teachers are tuned into a, and what kids are experiencing, where kids are tuned into each other, where there, when there are early warning signs, there are people that um, kids can go to that are responsible and will take action. I mean, I really think it's in those community qualities that are going to be our best line of defense against this kind of problem. Mm-hmm. I think that's you great. Know, a lot of these, in a lot of these cases, there were early warning signs and. Um, and students knew about it, and there, you know, things fell through the cracks, and you know, we got to seal the cracks in a way to make sure it doesn't fall through. Well, and that's I think also kind of why I asked the question. It was a little bit leading, but you know, just that that this is yeah. the the groundwork. You know, like we're trying to fix the roof when the foundation is just crumbling. You know, and you can't yeah. just you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. One other thing that I know you get a lot of press about is your um, talking about college applications and how that's shifting. Could you just talk a little bit about what brought you to be interested in that topic? Yeah, so I, um, you know, when I mentioned before the need to elevate concern for others and the common good, there are a number of different ways to do that. One is that there are key adult institutions that send messages to kids about what's important all the time. And colleges are one of them. I mean, they're always in the admission system sending messages about what's important. And I think the messages that they're sending now is that what's important to us is academic achievement, athletic achievement, donor status, legacy status. Those are the overwhelming messages. And um, given that those are the overwhelming messages, it's, it's super important to 
send messages as well about the importance of ethical character, of honesty, integrity, concern for others in the admissions process. I mean, kids are getting the wrong set of values and messages from college admissions. And, you know, we came out with this report, we got 50 colleges behind it, we now have almost 200 colleges behind it. And they are sending the message collectively for the first time that ethical character really matters to us. Mm-hmm. You know, we hope to get more colleges on board, and we had, you know, hope to get more colleges giving more weight to ethical character in the admissions process. So, so that's what that works about. That's awesome. It's funny because I'm glad I asked that question because I, I mean, I have read about it, but I, in my mind, somehow I was thinking, oh, this work is to help parents and kids like chill out about um, great academic success. But really, it's the opposite. It's that the the colleges are the leaders and they're setting the tone for all this other stuff that trickles down. Is that we're coming out with our second report, which is also focused on high schools and what high schools can do. Okay. but I think they're very connected. I think colleges have to send signals about reducing stress, you know, changing this balance from uh, focus on changing the balance in the degree to which people focus on achievement versus other things like concern for others. Um, and the high schools have a critical role too, a pivotal role. So. I actually do um, college interviews. And parents have a pivotal role too, but yes. <laughs> that's a topic probably for another report. Yes. Anyway. Um, I do interviews for Georgetown University for their um, alumni interview. I don't know if they're on your agreed upon list, but this was the first time that, you know, before the admission cycle gets going, we always have someone from the admission staff come and do a meeting. And this is the first time they talked at length about wanting to be really clear on what are what is the student doing for their community and what are they doing outside of the school building and outside of their grades and sports. Oh, good. So, yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, well, I just want to thank you so much. I don't know if there's anything else that I haven't asked you about that you were hoping you would be no, able to talk I about. Wonder, I think you did a wonderful job. We got through a lot. We covered a lot of territory, so it was great. Well, thank you so much. And I have one last question that I usually ask the people I'm talking to, and that is about self care. You know, in all of this work and trying to help kids and help schools, what I'm wondering what you do for yourself to make sure that you're keeping yourself healthy to be able to do this important work. <laughs> Outside well, of doing interviews that. when you're not feeling good, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, um, that's a great question too. I, you know, I'm a, I'm energized by the work. I think the work's important. I'm energized by my students and by the number of people who are engaged in this work. People like you, you know, I mean that, who care mm-hmm. about these issues. That's you know, that really lifts me up every day. Um, and I, have, you know, I have a wonderful family that also keeps me up, and great friends. And I do take a break from the work, and that's important. You know, I, the cell phone stuff is a problem. The cell phone <laughs> is that what you said? Yeah, I mean, yeah. just a lot of emails and cell phone. That's the problem. But I'm trying to be very deliberate about taking a break from that yes. stuff and getting away from work for periods and doing you know other kinds of things that are nourishing. But I'm in a in a lucky situation where I feel mostly energized by the work. Well, that's awesome. Well, I, I really do love everything you're doing with Making Care in Common, and it has been an inspiration to me. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you so much. I'm cheering for you. And, you know, I think what you're doing is great. Thank you. I hope you All feel right, better. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Family Brain. Please make sure you check out uh, Richard Weisport's books. The first one that I'm super interested in is The Parents We Mean to Be how well-intentioned adults undermine children's moral and emotional development. 
And then he has another book, The Vulnerable Child, What Really Hurts America's Children and What We Can Do About It. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I want to thank Game Day Media and thank you, Jill Goolsby, for doing the show notes. And we have a new role. Christina Galligan is our official quote puller. She is helping me find fun quotes from the episodes to load onto Instagram with a nice relaxing background. Um, so thanks for all the help and hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.